Humans are a whole called universe, once thought limited by time and space. Albert Einstein Brick Moon Fiction presents Tidings of Light and Spirit by Brian Aiello, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. December 24, 1936 Still tired from the daily ritual starting with chapel, followed by a day's worth of class time and study, he trudges behind Juliet, trying hard not to admire the way she confidently guides them to their destination. The crowd mills around a dais as men work to turn a Christmas tree from dormant to festive. A giant fir, probably planted hundreds of years before, covered in the glitz and glamour of the holiday. The Princeton freshman, Claudio Santos, feels the memory of a ruler on his knuckles as his thoughts go beyond a god birthing a son to the real miracle of a bang birthing everything. And as they take one more step, the crowd parts, and there he is. He stops mouth open and his jaw hanging loosely as if on hinges. On every Christmas that has ever existed, Einstein plays a concert, says the girl, Juliet, who didn't take no for an answer. She promised she'd come find him, and now here he is, freezing cold in a park off campus, listening to a Nobel Prize winner create magic out of strings, wood, and muscle twitches. Santos nods to his guide while shivering in the cold December air and turns to watch the famous man of math strum his instrument with horsehair. He settles his fingers and the notes to Mozart's minuet begin. The Jewish Christmas caroling theoretical physicist, he says, hoping the words sound like a joke and not anti-Semitism. Nonplussed, she says, wherever there are ears, he plays. Honestly, it's either play his violin or daydream. The man is not the deepest pool. Just the waters are so very sweet, Santos thinks, before asking, doesn't he lecture? To some, and she smirks. After, Claudio wonders whether the statement is innuendo, being there's rumor regarding the theorist's bathrobe accidents. It's campus-wide. As he thinks, a lull develops. He imagines the horror of Juliet being one of those unfortunate women and turns to apologize for the thought, but instead finds her studying his face. Hmm, she says, as if comparing. You have his jawline. Claudio stutters, feeling awkward under Juliet's kind blue eyes, and decides to pretend he didn't hear, but he did, because the classic debate has already begun in his head. Why would he have the same jawline? But he knows. He has always known rumors of his unwed mother's embarrassing return from Switzerland seventeen years ago. Hard to ignore her passion for science and math, for great thinkers. He grew up with tales of American science conferences being read in his ear. He was made to memorize every paper Einstein wrote. His eyes flit to the wild-haired sixty-year-old. Hard to believe he has been less than a mile from him all semester, but now there he is. Basically God foaming at the mouth to reproduce notes written hundreds of years before. His mother was a secretary at a prep school in Mexico City, the Holy Cross, and secretly wrote papers under a pseudonym. It's obvious why Juliet would show interest in his genetic line. But instead of acknowledging Juliet's insinuation, he fills the air with, I do think he is very good. He's a genius. She shrugs, turning away from him, because even that definition was trite. The tree in the center of the park is plugged in, and the lights surrounding it explode in seasonal fervor. The crowd gasps with awe and claps on cue. An Anglican minister stands to make prayer, he is fat under his inky wool cassock. Claudio rubs his ungloved hands together and, wanting to fill the building's silence between him and his guide, says, 
Why does he have to be a genius when it is so blessed cold out? As a scholarship kid from Mexico City, he has been caught off guard by the December weather. Juliet, a wasp from Connecticut, was bundled as one would expect. They stand in Marquand Park together under a crystal clear sky, dotted by over a billion twinkling stars, made dimmer by the more local brilliance of the holiday tree and Albert Einstein. But instead of ignoring his obvious filler question, she turns and her face scrunches as if seriously considering an answer, and he falls in love just as the clergy member begins in Our Father, and a few of the gatherers around them shush him and make hard eyes for him not to speak again. Juliet shrugs and gives him a little smile and grabs Claudio's hand. He squeezes back before realizing she is actually dragging him over to Einstein. The Albert Einstein, the man who offered a definition for light and gravity, which the experts have been compelled to consider as fact. Einstein mutters to himself as he sees Juliet approach and begins to shove his violin into its case. The crowd around him gives him space, but obviously eats up his every move. Claudio feels the tingle being around greatness. It races up his feet and legs and spine to raise the curly brown hair on his head. Professor, here is the boy you asked me to bring. And that was all it took. Einstein stops muttering and turns chocolate-brown eyes on the Mexican teenager. He looks him up and down. A small smirk grows from the corners of his mouth. What is the speed of light? Claudio looks down at his hands as if the number might be there, but they are empty and useless in this task. And so is the question. It's empty because it depends. And now Claudio finds himself with a choice. Defy answering the man a number meant to represent the speed of light or try the truth. So he does. There is no exact speed at which light travels. There is no constant. It's only a theory. And yet, movies shine light on 24 images a second and replicate reality with such fluidity viewers can immerse in different universes and add to this effect that it renders raw emotion. Can we call this truth? The Austrian-accented words make Claudio suck air between his teeth in shock. The grand fabric between realities, he says with awe. It's been the constant debate on campus since the semester started. Can the fabric of reality be shifted? If a choice can be made, many would prefer the stench of war engulfing the globe disappear entirely. But reality was already proving sinister, with Japan invading Manchuria and Nazi Germany saber-rattling. The promise of a dying generation, who said never again after the Great War, was fast being discovered a delusion. Yes, but whose reality? Mine. Instantly, he feels a cold shock work its way under his skin. Why had he said such a ridiculous thing? Another freshman just yesterday was ridiculed into tears for doing the same. A physics professor who overheard gave him actual demerits for the altercation, as he called it. Now him. And in front of this esteemed person, no less. The debate includes the caveat that no one reality can ever be singularly correct and only reality by committee would be best. Committee is most likely filled by the same lunatics who are aiming the world's military at each other. Claudio finds his eye shifting from the great thinker to the angel on the top of the tree. And that's the reality he would want. Peace. And if not him, then maybe Einstein? He finds himself slipping into a familiar fantasy of the harmonics of an eight-dimensional crystal. He imagines an eight-dimensional crystal, made with the smallest structure known to exist in the universe, stacked one on top of each other. The quarks fight for freedom, but by the science of magnetism, 
they are forced to balance and tighten and become reality. He imagines the harmonics, the constant hum of this battle. He then finds himself thinking of a fat woman singing the final aria of an opera. In his fantasy, the soprano hits her upper register and shatters the eight-dimensional crystal into two pieces, but they instantly balance to each other because in their run, positive and negative, they seek freedom and instantly imprison themselves. But unlike a crowded auditorium running from a fire, they do no damage, just are. It's now two perfectly tight, informationally packed packages of reality, where only one is needed. Claudio is not one to waste a gift, especially not on Christmas Eve, and wishes he can direct the second eight-dimensional crystal like a reality bomb. If realities can be split, can they be joined? Juliet coughs, and Claudio looks up to see both her and Professor Einstein staring at him. He expects a rebuke, but instead, Einstein seems to praise his answer of mine with a game. Do you know what reality uses to form consciousness? Does Albert Einstein, the theoretical old man in socks three days overdue for the laundry, actually exist? Do you? Or are we both an allowed construct by a universe-created illusion? And Claudio knows the answer. Consciousness creates reality. The tree does not exist until it is seen. It is just there until a thought makes it a thing. You both exist and don't exist. Exactly. And Einstein closes his eyes and begins to daydream. It is said he daydreams in music and math and moves them together in such a way that, if witnessed by other humans, would change their very souls. As if conducting a symphony, he raises his finger to chest level and waggles it back and forth. When he reopens his eyes again, small tears well up and spill out onto his cheeks. Welcome to the Institute for Advanced Study. You'll need this. He removes from his pocket a huge diamond, which flickers in the lights thrown from the tree, and Claudio thinks he can hear the light play music in the crystal. He can't wait to explore its capabilities in the lab. Einstein turns and bustles off in the direction of campus, then stops and beckons to them. Come on, you two. We have much to do if we are going to save humanity from itself. Christmas Eve, 2018. The general wears a battle dress uniform bedecked with four black stars. He is stout at 79, like no one should be. The lines around his mouth are serious. He couldn't possibly crack a joke yet. The weather outside is frightful. Hurricane Mamory will spin into New York City, and if you are in her wake, you will die. Whether you want to celebrate Christmas with your living relatives or your dead ones, that is on you. He pauses, and his seemingly set-in-stone mouth twitches, as if fighting a smile back to whence it came. Governor Cuomo has tasked the National Guard to be on high alert and ready to go if needed. The four-star general talks into a bank of microphones. His last name, Santos, is sewn into the fabric above the right breast pocket of his urban pattern BDUs. His silver hair glints in the dim light of the cloud-filtered sun behind him. Nonetheless, he squints like a bandito from an old western, and the lines around his eyes look like they could cut diamonds. He has 60 years of experience in the military, and didn't become publicly known until he took over the Emergency Preparedness Center in Washington, D.C., in spite of the federal defunding. If history finds out what the CIA did, they will call it a nonviolent coup. A four-star runs the president in the White House, the EPC, and the Defense Department, and a former intelligence captain in the State Department as secretary, 
The three publicly facing branches of government can present their comedy of stupidity, but the decision at the last General's Council was that until the country comes to their senses and makes better choices in future elections, the General's Council has decided to tighten the grip they already have. He hopes soon this reality will be over. If tonight works, he might not even exist tomorrow, but knows the Council's cynicism is deserved, and in a few short decades humanity could cease to be altogether. So maybe it doesn't matter, and reality will always find a way to exist even beyond the Santos family. His pause deepens to an uncomfortable length. Cable News Channel puts a video at the top of the screen. The video is history now. Him telling the nation, in his first press conference, that Puerto Rico will never happen again. Americans will not suffer unduly while I serve, he said. The video is muted, but no one watching it needs to hear the words. It's iconic now. On the live feed, the storm comes and the Statue of Liberty is a speck of green under the dark gray canopy of clouds. A platoon's worth of National Guard troops lay down a wall of sandbags on the greenway of Battery Park. Each one of the soldiers is stripped out of their jackets and down to a t-shirt, but still are drenched in sweat from the effort. Their rifles, collected in piles, promise they aren't just there to do labor. These are warriors, willing and able to do warrior things as well. The water on the Staten Island Sound is still like glass. Nary a bird flies or boat floats under a sky that seems to be laying right on top of the earth, crushing it. His growing smile falters as if it sprung a leak. This is the biggest storm ever to be recorded by mankind. There will be deaths. If you are in New York City or on the eastern seaboard from Boston to Charlotte, when this behemoth hit, it is not likely you will live. And if you do, help will be unable to get to you before you die. I promise we will not come for you. The general pauses and stares into the camera. There are many pointed at him, but it seems he is looking into each and every set of eyes and hearts of every viewer at home. Even those far from the fray that Hurricane Mamrie promises turn from their televisions, intimidated by the warfighter's steely gaze. Many debate whether they are in compliance with the general's orders or are in danger of risking his ire. I am confident the EPC's system will work and each and every citizen affected by this storm will survive if you follow our suggestions. If you die tomorrow, it is because of a personal choice not to heed my advice, and we will call your death suicide. He pauses, maybe for emphasis, maybe to add a small prayer, though it is unlikely the general would be praying to a god, though. He snarls. Tomorrow morning, nothing will be the same. Questions? The crowd of reporters explodes, hands waving, words spilling over one another. The general points to an attractive 24-year-old reporter for New York One who spits out, what do you say to people who are calling this push to evacuate the Northeast Corridor a conspiracy the government is not even trying to hide? He chuckles, and the reporter flinches as if she can sense his intention to call her stupid along with the answer. There is nothing to hide here. When this storm hits our shore and you are standing in its way, it will run you over and you will die. Believe me or not, this is reality. This is happening. He turns and leaves the microphone bank absolutely disgusted by the question, and as if judging all other likely questions to be as unhelpful, struts to and climbs in his waiting command vehicle, a brand spanking new black HMMWV, a dozen or so meters away. He shuts the hardened door after himself. A small fan hums, moving moist air around the vehicle cab. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't look uncomfortable. He just is. 
He sits in the glow, waxing from three monitors playing news channels on mute and three monitors with live on-site updates. One is from the test site, the Hadron Collider under Long Island, and another from the satellite tracking Air Force Storm Chaser planes. The pilots don't know they also seed the storm with the sensors they drop. The sensors are actually tablets filled with millions of irradiated sulfur pellets that not only make the clouds produce water, but also warm up the water below. The resulting barometric pressure is the lowest ever recorded and vital if the experiment is to succeed. The result from the poison would be devastating to this reality, if not for the shattering of the boron, once it splits into four pieces and produces the exact resonance needed. This reality will cease. He picks up his phone and punches the number to his S2 chief intel officer, a major in the marine recon. The major picks up. Go for Johnson. Are the reporters being rounded up? He asks, seeing the footage on another cable news channel of the reporters gathered in Battery Park in near riot as they are herded on a bus destined to remove them from Manhattan. One man makes a break for it. He sprints across the park and nears the huge fort the park's namesake, built right on the sound. The general waits for the sniper to take his shot, knowing he issued a kill order for dissidents, and is surprised when the soldier takes out an ankle, and because agony is agony, later the medical report from the hospital will probably say fractured ankle, surgically implanted metal rod for support, and nothing about the bullet that did the injury. Bus being loaded now, headed toward the tunnel soon. They'll be in Jersey by dark. Johnson is a human bulldog, if he wasn't a Marine, he'd be in a circus sideshow. Even his voice reminds Santos of an angry bark. Get the soldiers on that sandbag detail loaded up also. Nothing is saving downtown Manhattan. And I have a report from NYPD that precincts are reporting green levels for evacuation. East New York and neighborhoods in the Bronx had to be torched, but still people are refusing to leave. The police want instructions. They are to attempt arrest, but the kill order is still active. Yes, sir. Santos hangs the mic up and looks into the last monitor trained on his father's home 20 or so miles away in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. His entire childhood took place in that home. His mother helped buy that home before she died, birthing him. His own grandson, the super collider genius coder people have been calling the dribble since preschool, lives there still. And to think, it's the epicenter to all of this. Something started almost 85 years ago on the Princeton campus a campus he himself walked across, and his son, and even the Dribble. A legacy family. All except his son, West Point grad, former Special Forces combat medic in Vietnam, was a medical doctor when he died on 9-11, crushed by a piece of the falling debris as he left safety to help an older woman who collapsed in the street. They both died, supposedly died, because neither body was ever found. His wife killed herself, leaving the Dribble with him. Santos doesn't like thinking about his son's death and knocks on the HMMWV's armored roof. His driver opens his door and climbs in. The E-5 with a ranger tab looks back silently at his commander for instructions. Take me home, sergeant. And the sergeant nods, puts the vehicle in drive, and guns it to the engine's limit up the Roosevelt Parkway towards the Brooklyn Bridge. On Christmas Eve, 64 years before the biggest hurricane ever to strike the eastern seaboard, a small squall fills the porthole looking out onto the Pacific Ocean. Despite the cascading waves and zigzagging lightning, Einstein is surrounded by men in tweed and manages to look relaxed, if not bored. Claudio is impressed with how he handles being the center of attention in a room full of people who could make their career by making him wrong. 
Claudio sits at their table, still littered with dinnerware, and sips a cup of warm coffee. As usual, Einstein is rumpled and muttering and waving his right index finger in the air and bouncing on the balls of his feet as those around him chat and argue while awaiting word the nuclear bomb test is over. None assume that they will be able to see it in the overcast conditions. Claudio is also watching Emma Ray, a septuagenarian science journalist, skulk closer. She has told anyone who would listen that she has been commissioned to write about the science being done on the Bikini Islands for the New York Times and would kill for an interview. As expected, she stops near Claudio and immediately complains that, in better weather, we could at least see a few of the islands. She snuggles down into her fur coat and the question lingers, as it has throughout the trip, whether she has anything on under it or not. Einstein has suggested he knows, with a little smile, when Claudio approached him with the question, but did not expressly confirm it. Standing at the huge windows a bit away, Brock Lancaster from the Oxford Astronomy team turns to her and replies, brown specks really 20 miles away. She nods but doesn't respond. Instead, her attention is glued onto Einstein's back, who has yet to turn and acknowledge her presence. It was just bad luck the one test they all had managed to get to was going to be done in the rain, and mainly to gauge the effects inclement weather had on the bomb. Some have suggested this was also to hurry along the whole operation and be done with it. Einstein finally turns, as if having made a decision, and trains his gaze on the reporter. Rumors have leaked that the U.S. Navy is doing horrible things to the natives here. And because of that, Claudio chimes in, few boats are allowed close. More likely the radiation. Can't see the Navy being too concerned with public opinion, Brock inputs. Einstein's boat was chartered by a hundred scientists wanting to catch a glimpse of the experiments being conducted. It wasn't just dropping a bomb to destroy things. It was also, as Einstein keeps reminding him, Science on the atomic level with endless possibilities. Claudio coughs. He remembers saying those words and now does not know how Einstein manages to remain so chipper. It's obvious they are going to die tonight, and maybe not just in this storm. The ship sways back and forth as if making one last argument against remaining on board, leaving Claudio certain it will tip over soon. But somehow he is the only one affected by the swaying movement and the idea of imminent death, whether atomic or ocean. He blames Einstein's infectious curiosity on why he is here. Einstein and he have never mentioned their kinship. It is an unspoken secret between them, one that does not need words. Claudio's boy is almost grown, and thanks to a letter written by Einstein, in Princeton, not too far from where he got his own PhD ten years before. Now he is a tenured chair at Tandem Engineering and an expert in crystal design. Juliet worked with him there until she died. Lung cancer. It's been ten years now, and he knows she is the reason he wants to see this one experiment through. An unverbalized promise that no matter what, even up to and including using Einstein himself, he would succeed at the work they did together. The resonance of the reality code. He touches Einstein's diamond in his pocket. It's the most unique crystal he has ever worked with. Certainly not dug from the earth. The diamond was ten pounds and glowed always with the complete spectrum of colors. The sound, when struck, took almost twenty years of solid applied math to determine. His equation equals time, space, and reality. Soon, clouds or no clouds, he will know if he is right, as long as they detonate his nuke. The crystal has already been on an astonishing journey. It was the prism that inspired Einstein's theory of relativity and has been in his possession since he was a professor in Zurich. 
Claudio has never found another like it. Even where it is said to have come from seems odd, doesn't fit. Not for the first time while feeling it in his grip, he senses something ageless about it, something cosmic. As his mentor and the very reason he was even able to write the experiment up in the first place, Einstein had to be here. Obviously, he was curious and wanted to observe the final part of the test started in his name and finished with his crystal. The crystal that started it all for him 50 years before. A crystal he acquired from a Zurich specialist who said it was trash and the market demands flaws. Too perfect. People call it fake. Pretty junk. They got to the bikinis just after the nectar-boosted fission bomb was dropped on the Eroige Atoll. And Claudio has never felt sicker. His entire body feels filled with mucus. The others look no better off. Except Einstein. He blames the radiation and the likelihood Einstein will live forever. This whole section of ocean seems sick and jaundiced, as if the repeated nuking of the island chain was ruining the world, and he had begged to be a part of it, just like he begged Einstein to write his now famous letter to Roosevelt explaining the need to research atomic energy. It's been almost two decades since he joined Einstein at the Institute and his work on time and reality. His life was easy. Brooklyn was an easy place to live, and his life gave him much opportunity to brainstorm, and now here he is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, sharing a cabin with an overly excited physicist who more than once has let it slip he thinks Claudio did it. He solved the reality code. Though neither will admit knowing for certain, they shared the moment as father and son. Claudio's hypothesis is the information behind time, reality, and consciousness can be hacked and rewritten by using sound and crystals. It can shake a hole between realities and even cause some to merge together. What will actually happen is still a mystery, but Claudio thinks it could mean a new history for the 20th century and the whole world. He helped design the nuclear bomb that will comprise the Romeo test. Scheduled to go off at 11.59 tonight. Mere minutes, actually. Maybe seconds, hours, or never. The machine is built around a crystal identical to Einstein's. This crystal is fake, replicated by Claudio, but when the bomb detonates, the harmonics should be the same and recorded on site. The data eventually will make it to him in New York whenever it clears government control. Then he publishes, String Theory and Chaos Bow Out Forever in Favor of the Reality Code. Imagine sending Julius Caesar the Shakespeare play, Einstein mentioned once. Likely would drive the man insane, Claudio answered back. But this was the idea behind what earned him his Ph.D., his top-secret rated dissertation titled The Harmonics of Splitting an Atom Through Time. He should be famous because his ideas take relativity to the next level, functional, beyond chaos and string and into something new, something that not only identified the math of reality, but allowed editing of the existing information, like whiteout for all time and space. Do you feel that? Einstein says, turning and winking at Claudio. And Claudio knows what he is talking about. The atmospheric pressure is low. It's what allows the weather outside. Weather, crystals, explosions to split atoms, all have been eating at Claudio since he was a boy, and thanks to Einstein's work, imagined his first journey at the speed of light. The limitless possibilities. A storm? Emma asks. Yes, Claudio says, and turns around to face his decades-long student, it might make the difference here today. Claudio feels the building charge with static, and it is too late to do anything but watch. 
He removes from his pocket the crystal with its six trillion perfectly stacked quarks resting in eight dimensions and reflects a rainbow of colors onto Einstein's smiling face. Brock says, Get ready to experience history, chaps. Those around him clap softly while hoping to see anything nuclear occur. They are not disappointed. The explosion is epic. The orange ball fights back the clouds and rain, and for a single second, the entire section of ocean seems to be layered in X-ray images. Even the beings in the ocean are see-through for a moment. Even the water itself, right down to the rocky Pacific floor, seems to suck up radiation and makes everything ethereal and intangible. Einstein lights up like an angel. Every piece that makes up who he is seems visible, right down to his soul, which just as soon as the shock wave of the bomb hits the cruise ship, swaying it back and forth on huge waves, the bright shining glow surrounding his mentor. The same type of glow surrounding Emma and Brock and everyone else watching out the windows as the explosion finishes. The only difference, Claudio now finds himself in possession of the light that was Einstein's soul. He closes his eyes and still, the blast is visible there like its stain on his eyes. But also in his head are the wafting notes of a perfectly tuned violin playing something lively and nervous. Through the music he sees potential, answers, all in the same swirling universe as he. He feels like laughing at the inevitable casualties just being creates. He pushes the images and music and what-ifs and they become more real and vibrant. Startled, he stops. It almost feels like his thoughts were a place to live. A timeless, borderless paradise even the most whimsical thoughts can thrive in. He wants to explore more. Go back in and play with ideas, but the crowd gathered lets loose a collective moan as the famous physicist Albert Einstein collapses in a heap of muscle and bone and a sickening old man's splat. The news will hear about his demise in five months and that he died at his desk from an abdominal aortic aneurysm, but the truth is he died here at sea from something no one can explain. The government stored him in various freezers. Every part of him poked and prodded until he was brought home to Princeton, cremated and deified in history. December 24, 2018. History forgot Claudio Santos, Ph.D., as he fought to understand and correct a lifetime of mistakes, and on a new Christmas Eve, the supercentenarian watches his street for the last time from the vantage point of a 40-year-old kitchen chair parked for decades in front of the huge bay window in his living room. He knows his street as well as he ever learned advanced math, he knows which cars belong to which owner. He knows everyone who lives in this strip of historic brownstones. He knows the mailwoman and the sanitation workers, the traffic cops handing out tickets on Tuesdays and Thursdays when residents fail to move their cars. He knows the weed dealers also, only because they visit his grandson on their bikes and have no other point. Today the normal bustle is absent and the street is empty under a sheet of swirling gray sky, promising violence before the fury of hurricane memory is done. The TV is on, the volume muted. A woman, Choa Chang, in a form-fitting tan suit, points to a storm system swirling just under the cable news channel's logo. The blob of Purple's path is heading to smash everything north of Wilmington and south of Boston, just like has been promised. Just how he detailed in the plan to the General's Council after Einstein died. Evacuate now flashes at the bottom of the screen with information about what to do to find somewhere safe if you live within 30 miles of the coast. He is not safe here in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, 
but at 115 years old, he is never far from death anyway, and the idea of not being here tomorrow does not even faze him, because that's been the plan for a while now. Plus, this is his storm, thought up and worked on for over 66 years of effort. He'd be more than happy when the universe beckons him to oblivion only after the success of tonight's experiment. This project has been his life's work. Once it's over, it would be poetic if he were over also. He is ready. He has been ready ever since Juliet died almost 80 years ago. Momentarily distracted by existentialism and the lie of a great reward, he returns his attention to the Pakistani man across the street who rips another piece of masking tape off the roll around his wrist and places it diagonally across the glass he just paid to have installed around his front porch. For climate control, Claudio heard him tell a neighbor who inquired. Already many giant X's of masking tape mark his progress. Futility. Maybe the windows will survive, but it won't matter because everything in Brooklyn will be underwater this time tomorrow. But that'll be after the huge blast of nuclear energy is released, the biggest nuclear explosion known to man. Enough energy to level it all, but again, it's possible, mathematical. A bit of tape will save his windows. Just Claudio doubts it. The city is so quiet he can hear Fahad rip the tape from the roll and wonders how long it's been since he last saw a car as if the thought triggers the event. A military ambulance with Brooklyn Naval Yards stenciled on the front bumper pulls to a stop in front of his house. The rear door opens and out steps the nurse his son has been sending to issue care for him. He watches the second lieutenant steps onto the sidewalk between two parked cars, and Claudio wonders if the driver will report Fahad. He is supposed to. The ambulance idles, belches a black cloud of exhaust, and the driver picks up his singer mic, and Claudio knows he does the right thing, just as Lieutenant Lucy Espinosa lets herself in. She yells out, Hola, Mr. Claudio. He likes to speak Spanish to her. To anyone. And Brooklyn definitely does not disappoint with opportunity. Lucy is pretty and Dominican and satisfies lots he thought was dead in him. As she closes the door, he catches the scent of pina colada. She tells him today's menu with an accent of someone whose R's and L's have been kidnapped and drags the IV stand from a dark corner over to the kitchen chair and Claudio. Her soft hands touch his bare forearm and he thinks of his youth when mobility and simple human function weren't daily concerns and forgets about Lucy under a dark storm of music and thoughts from his past until she turns the lights on the little Christmas tree his son set up by the TV. And there it is, Einstein's crystal sitting in the branches. It always finds its way out during the holidays, and this, his last Christmas, is no different. The tree lights glint on all the ornaments his child and grandchild and great-grandchild have picked out over the years. Everything looks sad. They are painful reminders of times that could have been better with Juliet. But without her, he wishes number two hadn't bothered. Please turn it off. Oh no, it's very pretty, she says, turning from the tree to get started with his care. She lifts his wrist to place the blood pressure cuff around his arm, and he doesn't push. He wants her to be happy. She is young and pretty and smells nice and is the only person he looks forward to seeing every day, and also because she doesn't know anything about him, and when he gets tired of her or she pries too deeply, he can order her superior to send someone new and never have to see her again. After today, though, it won't matter. He simply sits and enjoys her company because that is his job now. Wait till the wasting disease called old age finishes him off, or he resets his reality. 
She presses a button and the cuff on his arm inflates and reaches into her insulated bag to gather the sacks of fluids destined to enter his body. She sets everything up and tapes the lines secured to the pole, and Claudio loves her until she readies the needle and comes for him. Lucy grabs the loose flesh dangling under his bicep and jabs the IV needle into what looked like a vein to Claudio, but instead of a satisfied sigh she leans over in frustration, likely doesn't know him as anything but a job and a name on a schedule. But judging by how hard she tries to get the needle connected to the IV cocktail of life-saving meds she brought into him, she is probably aware he doesn't have long to live, and every moment is crucial. I might have to go through your groin. Promise, he says, smirking and happy a bit of his old self is still around. He knows his wife would want him to be more dignified, but she has been gone so long. Even her ghost has rotted and he is an old man and can say and do whatever he wants, and with a jolt he realizes he is having an argument with an old memory, and his moist eyes grow wetter. Not a good sign, and not just in terms of age, but in terms of shelf life, and every day he feels closer to the end of his. The nurse laughs with a snort through her little brown Dominican nose, just as she manages to find a vein or something that makes her think the meds are getting to where they need to go inside him. There. Now how about some of this good stuff, hmm? She purses her lips, and they are a darker shade of brown with a wispy thin line of wet pink inside, and he loves her face, and the way the muscles move with the sound. She twists the valve, and clear liquid begins to drip down the line into his arm. He obviously can't hear it, but like clockwork, he makes the sound he imagines from the algebra of the drip. He calculates the sound to be four decibels, and that each drip moves him closer to a million. The rhythm of the steady drip, drip, drip fills his head with happy, friendly numbers. 504,678, drip. 504,679, drip. 504,670. Is he right? Of course, he is, and no one is alive to check him. Either it's his number, and when it stops, it will mean nothing more can be done to prevent the rot that is life's inevitable conclusion. He is 115 years old and counting, in a reality that will be over soon anyway. Already he feels the cold fluid entering him and he knows his time is not even close. His body sucks up the medicine and he feels life tighten her evil talons on his soul. Anything good today? He asks, knowing the numbness on his lips means yes. A little fentora, I think. Should help you sleep. She removes the blood pressure cuff from his bicep and begins to roll it up to put back in her bag. He counts his number and watches her until she breaks the silence. Is it true what people say? And he knows what people say and almost loses count for the first time, hoping she doesn't ask the dreaded question about his paternity. His heart hurts instantly with the idea of explaining it all to someone new. He doesn't like new and says, I dress every morning in khakis and a button-down tartan cotton shirt. I own a dozen like-styled shirts because my wife insisted I not be the normal scientist in white and black, and I won't be the normal scientist. I am a teacher of physics and maker of crystals, and nothing more. He moves his stiff toes inside his fluffy cotton socks and warm slippers, and still feels like his toes are iced over. The doctor says poor circulation. Claudio agrees and hopes under his breath that's what kills him. The nurse asks, what did Einstein smell like? Old man and rotting teeth. He turns to look out the window onto 56th Street. Some of the homes have Christmas decorations out. Christmas has just been a day to him, 
a day he met the love of his life, and the day his mentor died, and today, the day he edits reality. South of this Sunset Park brownstone in a little plot of land he bought when all land was cheap, yesterday or years ago, he buried Juliet for a hundred bucks and purchased the plot beside her for himself. He will never claim that space. It's the curse that came from helping build the bomb, meeting Einstein, marrying and loving Juliet and taking his mentor's essence. Eternal life. Einstein's thoughts led to the atom being split and it changed the world. Wars were fought and ended for this technology, yet what the world didn't realize was Einstein's theory meant that with right harmonics, the reality code could be edited. If it had been associated with chaos theory, he would be celebrated like Stephen Hawking and maybe be getting buried at Westminster, and not an anonymous old man stuck on a kitchen chair to wait out the rest of all time. And he looks at Lucy, realizing he just told her everything he meant to keep secret, and she blinks back in shock, obviously searching for words with which to fill the silence. To make it worse, his 400-pound, 40-year-old grandson stands in the vestibule, staring at Lucy with the front door open. Spotted, Claudio Santos IV, forever the dribble, slams the heavy wood door with a thud and abuses the stairs as he disappears into the lair he calls a bedroom but was once the attic. Sorry about that, Claudio says to Lucy. She turns back to him and expects her to ask what he meant about waiting out all time, but instead asks, Did you know anyone else famous? And Claudio shakes his head, deciding again history belongs with the dead, and happens to look out the window just in time to see two NYPD officers dump three bullets each into Fahad before dragging his lifeless corpse back into his family's home. Claudio ignores the screams of the man's family as they also pay for his hubris. Fifteen minutes later, the house explodes into smoke and flames, and Claudio hopes midnight comes before those flames do. Claudio IV reads the secure text from his boss one last time. It says, Send the new code when you can, Dribble. And he winces because being called Dribble is his least favorite thing. Ronald Pressler, the man who started his own lab, owns the New York Rangers, and a pizza franchise called The Ron has taken the nickname to a new level of hell. Room full of engineers, all crunching numbers on the Super Collider's server, and Ronald bends over to incorrectly point to a number and call it wrong, and worse, add, It's amazing you managed to dribble out of that 9-11 hero father of yours. The dribble decided to kill him right there and then, him and every single person who ever laughed at him. And if not everyone, at least he can erase New York City, and why not on Christmas? He can still hear his grandfather down below, his voice grates. Einstein this, Einstein that. The old geezer won't shut up about what was. Everyone knows Einstein was a dreamer, a charlatan who barely knew how to math, never got his own right answers, and was certainly on the spectrum. The fourth was a computational physicist. He fixed the problems with Einstein's math one smashed atom at a time. Tonight, he is one command away from smashing together all the atoms in the Hadron Collider. Why? Well, to fuck them all, of course. All of them and their pettiness and their convoluted memories and their stodgy ideas. And all made possible because Ronald Pressler loves science. Especially the double net worth kind. So that's what Claudio number three promised him. No, more what his math promised would happen when Boron is busted down into pieces tonight at midnight. The code the Ron wants fixed is a virus Claudio IV put into play himself. 
It ramps up the collider's intake until it's flooded with boron particles going near the speed of light, then kablammo. Bye-bye, New York. The storm makes it the perfect opportunity. Yes, he will kill himself, but the work at the lab dies also. Work that has gone the wrong way. Relativity is the reality code, not information beyond a black hole. Black holes are reality. They can be written. They can be gates. The potential of life is what can be thought up, not what is wasted through nature's chaotic glut. Unleash the Kraken. He lets the scene from the old 80s movie play out in his head. It's what he thinks of when this phrase comes up about unleashing the reality code. Reality code is as much bullshit as chaos theory or string theory. Just the mental masturbation of a man whose greatest aspiration was his very own apple tree to ponder the cosmos from under. Four feels guilty. He has been using another man's work. But then the Ron calls him Dribble, and he decides, fuck him, again. Because he is a 400-pound antisocial gamer dork in a Wolverine t-shirt that may or may not ever come off, and a suitcase that houses a nice computer tower monitor and industrial battery he programmed himself that can go weeks without being plugged in. Because he has never been paid. Because running would kill him and he is one of the smartest people alive. A freak. Because he can spend days awake coding experiments for the super collider and then fast twitch his way through a speedrun of Mario Brothers. He sits on his bed. The mattress creaks. He is tired. His body hurts. But now his work is done. He has completed every single task to move this orchestration forward like a perfectly organized equation. He thinks about laying down and sleeping through the big moment. He feels like he could. But if he wakes up and it didn't happen, he could have fixed the error that prevented it. The idea haunts him. He stands and closes his bedroom door and settles into the computer chair in front of his monitor. He moves the mouse and begins a vigil that will last until just before midnight, when he evaporates into a rewritten eight-dimensional reality. At midnight, the wind has blown out the fire from across the street, and the torrential downpour erases all glowing embers. It is pitch black through the window Claudio Santos sits in front of. The raging storm promises destruction. Claudio finds himself fearing the plan might be what kills him after all. Claudio Sr. moves from his kitchen chair into the easy chair across from the small Christmas tree and its crystal reflecting the rainbows. He is fine here. He sits and stares at the sad artificial Christmas tree, wondering about death. He is old and plays around with the idea of not being anymore. He can't even, as close to the end as he is, contemplate nothing. Maybe if he had meditated more, or tried acid. But his nothing always fills up with the idea of himself. Consciousness. Hey, Dad. It's the familiar face of the man he raised. Old now, also. The face that once belonged to the boy that fought for a four-minute mile time and earned a place on the West Point track team. The Vietnam veteran, Gulf War organizer, and war on terrorism declusterfucker. Merry Christmas, he says in a rasp to his son, feeling something he hasn't felt since he was young and in Mexico a sense for this holiday and the family around him. Then movement from upstairs and the big body belonging to his son arrives. They stand around each other and Claudio Sr. even senses Juliet there. And number three, maybe. They smile because being together is nice. Juliet would have already started a debate on accreditation and name order when publishing, but there wouldn't be any publishing for this work because the world they are in now is about to end. 
when every atomic clock on the planet points to the numbers that indicate midnight on the East Coast. The event happens. The boron circling the Hadron Collider accelerates right to the limit of the speed of light. Once there, their angles are adjusted with airflow and they are forced to collide with each other. The result is spectacularly brutal, even more so than the scientists waiting for the results in Brooklyn thought. The event evaporates everything made of matter, turning it instantly into antimatter. Even the Earth blinks out of existence and all that was is now a dream or hope or desire in a solar system that vanished because it never was. Just Voyager, alone at the cusp of this galactic space, was saved. Voyager with its gold record and last proof the mankind of this reality ever existed. In that reality, anyway. In the reality of the three Santos, they have shoved into something new, a new present. Nature warned them away from opening this present if they got to it. But they got here. They earned it, and they must, and they did, when the Dribbles Code did its thing. The universe sucks each and every one of their atoms apart from one another, then stacks them, pushing their substance down, mashing each quark, splitting them over and over, funneling them to the one place they can go, the only place they deserve to go. And they go there, to the Father of Time and Light and the Reality Code himself. When the clock 200 meters away dongs for the last time on what is now Christmas, Einstein opens his eyes, his dream far from forgotten. In front of him is the Mexican maid, a refugee stuck away from her country here because of war and famine, soon to be sent back because the cycle is not yet broken. She has said she could go home with help. The old Einstein would have given her that help, but not for free. The new him loves her like a mother. She stands in his doorway, and he knows he can use her any way he wants and for only the promise of a peek inside his thoughts. Instead, he says, Nothing today, Maria. Maybe another time. And turns his attention back to making Utopia with the only tool he has. Four genius-level souls. Brian Aiello hosts weekly podcasts on creativity and speculative fiction and is a writer of fantasy, sci-fi, and the macabre. Raised on Florida's Gulf Coast, Brian served in the Army, graduated from the University of South Florida, and now calls Brooklyn home. For more of his fiction and links to his podcasts, visit www.brianiello.com and follow him on Twitter, at Briello. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.